Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Brooke and Terry Tempest Williams came across a copy of British nature writer Richard Jeffrey's autobiography, The Story of My Heart, in a small bookstore in Maine. The beautiful volume intrigued them and inspired a journey. They traveled to England in order to learn more about the 19th century nature essayist. To wander the countryside was so inspired and captivated him. Delving into this love letter to nature strengthened and refreshed Terry and Brooke's relationship with each other and with the natural world. The book was originally published in 1883. The story of my heart explores Jeffrey's ideal of a soul life, which he experienced while wandering in England. A new edition of the book is now out from Tory House Press. In a foreword and essays alongside Jeffrey's original work, Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams contemplate dilemmas of modernity, the intrinsic need for wildness, and what it means to be human in the 21st century. And they'll be headlining a couple of uh, events upcoming in Utah. So tomorrow, Thursday, November 20th at 7 p.m. at Roland Hall School, Lincoln Street Campus in Salt Lake City, uh, an event for the King's English Bookshop. That's 7 o'clock Thursday night. And then December 1st, that's a Monday, 7 p.m., an event at Back of Beyond Books in Moab. So, uh, Terry Tempest-Williams, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you and your listeners. And Brooke Williams, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you being with us. Um, So, uh, Terry, you write a a foreword uh, kind of outlining this story, so I'll turn to you first. Uh, so you're in a small bookshop in Maine. I understand you go to Maine, uh, what, every fall? We do. Um, we have for the last almost 15 years. And uh, we first started going to Maine when my aunt and uncle served a Mormon mission in Cambridge, and Maine was part of their territory, so to speak. Uh, so I was going to ask you, to, uh, uh, so you've told me why you started going, but, but why, why, are you, why do you go back? What's, what's in Maine? I think what keeps us going back to Maine is the contrast. Certainly in the Colorado Plateau, in a palette of red, where we are confronted with an erosional landscape, in Maine it is luscious. Uh, You can walk barefoot on moss and sponge and lichens. It's high tide, low tide. It's on the edge of, of the continent. It's the first place that one sees the sunrise on Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park. So I think it's moving from a palette of red to a palette of of blue and green, a palette that incorporates the desert to a palette that incorporates the sea. Mm. So that contrast, I guess, is very, very nice. Exactly. And I would tell you that it's also the matrilineal line of my family, which through genealogy um, was a surprise to me. So... Um, generations of women on the Romney side can be traced um, to the very county that we visit in Maine, which I love. Interesting. So it's, uh, it draws you back, perhaps, by uh, blood ties. Yeah. It does. Cynthia Celestial Bunker is, is from Maine, and that's my ancestor who I believed called us back, and I responded. Mm-hmm. So you're in this small uh, bookstore, and, and Terry, I think you come across this small volume, you pick it up, it's the story of my heart, you start reading, and, uh, and something speaks to you. Well, Brooke and I have this favorite place. We love to go to Stonington. It's, on, it's a little um, fishing village on Deer Isle. There's a bookstore there that we love, and it's chaotic and dusty, and a million things can be found when your eyes settle in the kind of Um, dark and dusty atmosphere. And in the corner, I saw this small tan book um, with a gold-stamped title, The Story of My Heart. That intrigued me. I started reading it, and my eyes have no sense of fidelity. They will leap off any page and travel at will. (laughs) And I couldn't put it down, Tom. I just kept reading it. I was so moved. And just became completely absorbed. Brooke came over and just said, what have you found? And I started reading um, an excerpt to him, and we fell in love. I mean, it was really that clear. And just to read these few lines, how willingly I would strew the path of all with flowers, how beautiful a delight to make the world joyous. The song should never remain silent, the dance never still, 
the laugh should sound like water which runs forever. How pleasant it would be to think, today I have done something that will render future generations more happy. I will search the world for beauty. I mean, I felt like he was speaking absolutely to our own soul life, which is what Richard Jeffries speaks to. So, uh, Brooke, this is published in 1883. And, Correct. Uh, uh, some some contemporaries knew of the book, right? Uh, in fact, you uh, you write in a, in a response to one of Jeffrey's chapters. We'll get into this a little later. Uh, some people really really loved the book, and some people really really hated it. Um, what what spoke to you uh, almost immediately? Um, what spoke to me was a lot of what Terry just suggested. But then, as you go into it, I really felt like there was so much that Jeffrey's had to say about his time and place that were so similar to what we're saying about our time and place. I thought, you know, over the course of 130 or 150 years, not much has really changed. I mean, the the dimensions have, the intensity and the impacts have, but this guy was seeing a lot of what we're seeing today, and I felt like there's something here. We have to really pursue this. And then, Terry, you, there's this romantic scene, uh, and you say sometimes we uh, married couples, you, uh, you know, you, you, the truth is actually different from the way you remember it. But, uh, but you're on the beach, and Brooke is reading the book to you. He did. I mean, this has just been such a great journey for us, completely unexpected. And, you know, we should say the book was $75. We didn't have enough money. We thought, that's a lot. We had never heard of Richard Jeffries. We left. We started doing research. And we thought, this is amazing. He was, you know, the next generation following the transcendentalists here in America, you know, tied in Britain to Coleridge and, and whatnot, Wordsworth, the romantics. So we went back um, to buy it. And as they say, lo and behold, um, it was... It's, there was a sign that said prices are negotiable. It was 33 and a third percent off or something. Anyway, for $25, we left with this beautiful story of my heart, and we did go to a favorite beach of ours. And we did lie on the sand, and my head was on Brooke's chest, and he read it out loud to me. And, you know, not only did I fall in love with Jeffrey's, may I say I fell deeper in love with Brooke. And I think... You know, that's what a powerful book can do, is um, rekindle that sense of wonder. Hmm. And Terry, you write that in a marriage, long-term marriage especially, uh, you learn to accommodate each other's obsessions. And this, (laughs) uh, I guess, for Brooke, this really became an obsession. Let me just say that um, for the past three years, we've had three place settings at our table, not just two. So Richard Jeffries follows us everywhere. And honestly, I thought I had fallen in love with Richard Jeffries, but Jeffries and Brooke just kind of went on their own path, and I trailed behind. (laughs) Uh, Brooke, what do you... Is is that accurate? I think that's pretty accurate. (laughs) It it wasn't so much love with Jeffries and I. It was more of... uh, I, I had an assignment. I really felt like he had unfinished business that he needed me to finish, and I don't know what it was that let him, where from wherever he is dead, let him know that I was like vulnerable or open, but he came in full strength and kind of obsessed me for about three years, and I'm hoping now that the book's out, that will like ease off a bit. Mm-hmm. It, was it int- hasn't, Tom. Uh, oh, it hasn't, not yet. Okay, all right. No. <laughs> and that's why I would really love other people to absorb Jeffries so that Brooke doesn't feel so lonely in the world. Um, but, you know, the man is an ecstatic, what can I say, and so is Brooke, so I yeah. think it's a good match. Yeah, but but as you say, this this uh, this drew you, uh, I guess, closer, closer to Brooke. You're more in love now with, with Brooke. I just love a marriage of ideas, and... We have that, and I think the ideas that Jeffrey's talking about, whether it was advocating for the rights of farmers, whether it was walking the same path every day over and over again, seeing something new, or or talking about the indifference of nature. And there are certain lines that now live um, with us. I love this idea. He has a phrase where he says, 
naked earth creates naked mind. And I think that's true, that when we are in the presence of wildness, we recognize our own wildness. So I feel like when one enters the work of Richard Jeffries, one enters the work of a wild mind and a wild landscape. So having discovered the book and, and falling in love with the, with the, with the ideas and, and, and the words... Uh, the the two of you decide. Well, let's go to England. Let's let's walk the places where where Jeffries uh, walked. Uh, t- tell me a bit about that journey. Well, it's it started with um, we we got together with Tory House Press and told them about this little book, and they were intrigued and started thinking about it. And we actually had a deadline that we would um, publish the book. Terry would write an introduction. I would write an afterword. And when the deadline came or approached, Terry said, "You know." we should really think about going to England. We can't possibly do this book justice unless we see where it came from, what the landscape that inspired it. So we kind of went back to square one and planned a trip to England. And that happened in February of 2012, which is not a great time to go to England, but it turned out perfectly. Um, Things just fell into place. Uh, there's a thing, uh, a thing called the Richard Jeffries Society. They own a museum, which they created out of the house that Richard Jeffries grew up in. It's not a huge organization, and in fact, the museum itself is only open on Wednesdays in the summer. And it so happened that the day we got there was the board meeting that they hold once every three years, I think. Which I think it just happened that they heard two crazy Americans were coming who were interested in Richard Jeffries. That right. They held the meeting. Yeah. And Terry, and, you, you write yeah. that you encountered the six members of the Richard Jeffries Society. <laughs> this is a small society. <laughs> we did. And the, I mean, they were wonderful. Again, it's obsession meets obsession. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, not only is this a, about Brooke and my marriage and the story of, of my heart, this book by Richard Jeffries, but it's really a story of, I think, the marriage of you know, Kirsten Allen and Mark Bailey, who are the publishers of Tory House Press, and Mark's my cousin. And I think we all were so excited about what could unfold. So when we heard that this just happened to be where, when the society was meeting, we all had twinkles in our eyes thinking, okay, let's proceed. I have to say, Tom, the house itself was sort of creepy, don't you think, Brett? It was a little creepy, especially the... Um the mannequin that they had lying on the bed that was supposed to look like Richard Jeffries as mm, a boy. Okay. So I got yeah. a bit confused. I thought it looked like Joseph Smith. Hmm. Um, and then, then I thought we were in a rabid museum of natural history. There were some quite poorly preserved fox um, with a snide look on their face. But, but then there were all these incredible objects of pen and paper and timepieces and you realize this was a man so in love with the world. You know, he had published over 500 articles, numerous journals, um, many books on the erotic, and it was just this nature mystic who wandered the countryside of England. And I felt a deep kinship with his madness, Hmm. quite frankly. Madness, you, you call it. Madness in terms of just being completely possessed by, by nature and by the spirit inherent in nature. You know, the transcendentalists call it the oversoul. oversoul. Um, Richard Jeffries called it soul life. For me, it's that notion of reciprocity in the world around us, synchronicity of paying attention to patterns and purpose. Hmm. We're going to take a brief break. Uh, we have with us uh, Brooke and Terry Tempest Williams, uh, who came across a copy of British nature writer Richard Jeffrey's uh, book, The Story of My Heart, in a small bookstore in Maine. And it intrigued them, this volume, and inspired a journey. Uh, not only a physical journey, they traveled to England to learn more about uh, this man, uh, who uh, some call could be called the, uh, the, the father of uh, British environmentalist writing. We'll talk about that. We'll get into a little of his history. He had a short life, died of tuberculosis. More on Richard Jeffries' The Story of My Heart with Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams following this short break. 
Most U.S. universities won't divest of fossil fuel stocks so far, despite their own research that shows the dangers of global warming. And many of them in their letters, refusing to divest, say that they accept the science behind climate change and, and view it as ethically problematic. They just don't see divestment as a way to address it. The missing campus climate change debate. I'm Steve Kerwin, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring a holiday cookie box sampler for dinner parties, business meetings, and gifting. Information at crumbbrothers.com. We're back with Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams. We're pleased to have them for the hour in Access, Utah. They're going to be headlining a couple of events coming up. The first of those is Thursday, November 20th, tomorrow, 7 p.m. at Roland Hall School at the Lincoln Street Campus in Salt Lake City. That's an event for the King's English Bookshop. Then on Monday, December 1st at 7 p.m., they'll be at Back of Beyond Books in Moab. And uh, this book is now out, a new edition from Tory House Press. It's the story of my heart, originally published in 1883 uh, by Richard Jeffries, and uh, the subtitle, As Rediscovered, by Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams. Terry Tempest-Williams wrote the foreword. Uh, Brooke Williams wrote uh, responses, I guess you could call them, to the chapters uh, in this. Uh, Brooke Williams, what would you call this? A, a spiritual autobiography? What, uh, what would you call this book? You know, they refer to it as, as his autobiography, but I don't think it really is. I think it's more, as you said, a spiritual or a philosophical autobiography. It's just a train of his thoughts. I think when he um, first decided to, to make it into a book, he you know drew from a lot of his experience and a lot of the thoughts that he'd had throughout his life, but I also feel like he was at a point where he was sick, in poor health, and I think he wanted to get it down in one place, how he felt about the world, what he had seen, and what he believed. So I, I think your term, a spiritual autobiography, is a good one. Uh, Terry, uh, you wrote that this is a man who, who had to write. He, he wrote, he wrote a, a lot of works. He, he just seemed to need to write the way he seemed to need to breathe. I think that's true, and I think that it could be argued that Richard Jeffries lived twice. Um, the first experience, the direct experience, and then he relived it when he wrote it on the page. Hmm. And that kind of intensity and numinosity, I think, is, is felt when one reads Richard Jeffries. Uh, Brooke, uh, obviously you and Terry want to, to bring Richard Jeffries forward. You want him to be read. You want him to be known uh, why? This is, this, is, this is someone who's not all that well-known, although he was known, at least to some in his time. Rachel Carson, apparently, uh, Terry Wright, that uh, she had uh, his book on her, on her uh, bedstand at all times. Yeah, it's reported that she had two books by her bedside, Rachel Carson. Uh, one was Walden, and one was The Story of My Heart. I mean, Brooke, why would you say, why... why do you want his work out in the world? Well, there's there's two reasons. One of them is logical, and one of them is less logical. The logical reason is is that I felt like he had some foresight into some of what we're experiencing now and also beyond, and I feel like people who read it um, might be inspired to look sort of beyond our own, you know, the sphere of our own lives and and get a sense of really what's going on in the world in a metaphysical and um, physical way and maybe be inspired to do more. But illogically, I felt like, as I mentioned before, he kind of entered my bloodstream with his unfinished business, and I really didn't have a choice. Um, It was as if he really wanted his work out in, in this time and place. And when we were in England, at the Richard Jeffries Museum, they had a bookstore there, and I found at least a half a dozen different versions of this book that had been published, you know, every generation or so. And it's as if, you know, for the past hundred years, every twenty-five or thirty, this book comes out again for a new generation. And I and I love the idea that 
these books, these classics need to kind of come out and be reissued and reinterpreted every few generations. I think it's interesting that John Fowles, of, who wrote The Tree and um, The Collector, a great British writer, uh, the French lieutenant's women, was deeply, deeply inspired by Richard Jeffries, as was Henry Miller, which I think is, is fascinating. You know, he writes, quote, Is there anything I can do? Unquote. The mystery and the possibilities are not in the roots of the grass, nor is the depth of things in the sea. They are in my existence, in my soul. And I think that the story of my heart reads as a prayer. And in Jeffrey's words, by prayer, I do not mean a request for anything preferred to a deity. I mean intense soul emotion, intense aspiration. And I think we are all searching. You know, we've never been here before. We have these, you know, looming conversations about climate change, um, about biodiversity. You know, we are now living in the Anthropocene, where the press of our species is the force of a a geologic era. And I think Jeffries quiets the mind and restores us to that place of direct experience that inspires direct action. And uh, he made me feel less lonely in the world, Tom. Hmm. Brooke, uh, Jeffries has this idea of soul life. Right. Talk to me a little bit about that. You know, he he mentions it many, many times in the book. In fact, I've I've never really heard it phrased like that before, soul life. And I had to come to a, a realization of what it meant to me. And I, what I think it means, personally, is that there are two worlds out there. One is the outer world, and one is this inner world. And he calls the inner world the soul. And he refers to it in the same way I think Jung would refer to the psyche, that it's this all-encompassing world that includes, you know, what's in, at the depth of our unconscious and then what's in, what's in our consciousness. And I feel like what he was really advocating, what he was looking for, and what I'm looking for is this multidimensional, complete existence. I really feel like our society, modern society, has done everything it can to eliminate that inner world, that um, relationship that we have with the unconscious. And I think it's because it's bad for business. It's um, once we start to tap into that, we no longer need a lot of the things that the corporations are trying to sell us. And I feel like there's many, many people out there that would probably maybe some of your listeners that would say a lot of this is a little woo-woo, and it might sound that way, but I believe that there's this um, complete, complex, plex existence that's available to everybody, and in fact, maybe more necessary and um, required now than ever before. You, uh, Brooke, you, you write that uh, Jeffries uh, liked to, he didn't call it wandering, but, but essentially he wandered. You say that uh, Brooke likes to do that, or uh, Terry likes to do that as well. Yes. Um, I love the idea, and I hadn't really thought about it before. Um, but reading Thoreau, Thoreau mentions the word sauntering a lot, and I think that's the same idea. But that, you know, we all go for walks, but walk, walking's a pretty general term. Wandering, on the other hand, is very specific now, um, based on what I've learned about Jeffries, and that is, you know, sort of goalless, that you just go for a walk as a, an, an end in of itself and see what happens to you, as opposed to having, you know, vast destinations and, you know, time schedules. Um, I, I really believe that there's something to that, and I've tried to kind of pr- make a practice of it in my own life based on Jeffrey's influence. So, Terry, uh, wandering, what you, uh, you apparently, according to Brooke, like to do this. What, uh, uh, what, um, what does it do for you? I really love getting lost, and lost in the bird before me, lost in the moss beneath my feet. Um, my students always laugh, if I'm leading a walk, we don't get very far. You know, destination is not really part of my vocabulary. So I love to wander. I love, um, I've been obsessed lately with jackrabbits because when they run, it's zigzag. Uh, 
And I feel like that's been my life's path, is the zigzag. And it feels like that was Jeffrey's path. And so, again, um, he was recognizable to me. Hmm. Uh, Brooke, you talk about idleness uh, and that Jeffrey's, I don't know if he named it, but he... He had this idea that he hoped in the future that uh, we could all just sort of wander, be idle if we wanted to, uh, get out into nature if we wanted to, not have to work for our daily bread. And this idea is, uh, it's it's not very accepted in, in today's society. We have this Puritan work ethic and, and so forth. Oh, exactly. In fact, he saw what was, what was happening to society back then, and it's ten times worse now. I, I read an article recently, they call it the cult of busyness. And how many times you talk to somebody and say, how are you? And they go, oh, I'm so busy. Everybody's so busy. I think we're so busy because we don't want to really face that other world, and it's not advantageous to us as far as we can see. And, you know, Jeffries probably would took it a bit too far. He, as a kid, his, his family owned a farm. I think they were poor farmers. And he was he refused to work on the farm. He liked going out and wandering around the countryside and stopping and taking a nap underneath a tree and, you know, writing down what he was feeling and thinking. And the neighbors talked about him as being kind of off a little bit and on one hand and a ne'er-do-well on the other hand. Um, but he really, he was committed. He knew what he wanted to do, and he pursued it from a very young age. And he was a writer, and, you know, what a writer needs most is is idle time. And I think he was an intellectual as well as a mystic. I love this passage on idleness. Quote, I hope succeeding generations will be able to be idle. I hope that nine-tenths of their time will be leisure time, that they may enjoy their days in the earth and the beauty of this beautiful world, that they may rest by the sea and dream, that they may dance and sing and eat and drink, I will work toward that end with all my heart. If employment they must have, and the restlessness of the mind will require it, they shall not work for bread, but for their souls. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. it almost reads like scripture. And yet the other side of Richard Jeffries is he really was an advocate um, against development in Cote, the town that he lived in. He was an activist in terms of the rights of farmers. Uh, so he was a complicated man. But I would say he was a man of action, active imagination, um, active for those things that he cared about. And there's, there's actually now in Cote um, development that is proceeding, and there's a Richard Jeffries um, advocacy group taking his lead even 100 years ago. Uh, so, Brooke, in, as Terry mentioned there, um, the, in the British press, as, as Terry mentions, I think, in her uh, foreword, um, they call it ironic. There's development potentially going to go forward in the, uh, the, the home area of a man who could be called the father of uh, British environmental writing. Yeah, in fact, we just heard that it's, it's moving forward, you know, even though there has been a lot of opposition. It's, it's, it's unstoppable. It's everywhere. Um, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to imagine, but Explain, nothing is nothing is sacred. You know, Brooke, um, talk about the woman who's the curator at the museum. She's moving because her heart is broken. What did she say to you? She's a retired dentist. She's the head of the Richard Jeffries Museum, and if you think I went a little crazy about Richard Jeffries, she talks as if he's her lover. Somehow, I I love this woman. She's so intense about him and. She wrote, she, she got um, information on the book and wrote us an email just today, as a matter of fact, to say congratulations, I'm so glad this happened. She talked about the cover. She hasn't read it yet because she hasn't had a copy, but she's just seen something on the Internet. And she said, yeah, she and her husband are leaving and going to the Northwest where other family members live because they just can't bear to watch what's mm-hmm. happening to this countryside. Sounds familiar um, to a lot of those, especially those of us who live in southern Utah and watching what's happening with not only the real estate development, but also oil and gas development. Mm-hmm. Now, you split your time, don't you? Uh, Wyoming and, and uh, Castle Valley? Right. 
Yeah. Would 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 there ever be a you know a point where where you would follow this woman's lead? Uh, you know, development got to a point where you just uh, pack them and go. It's hard to say. I can't imagine it right now, but then maybe I can't imagine what is really possible either. We understand that on the school trust lands in the book cliffs uh, northeast of us may be the first tar sands development in the lower 48. And who knows what that will lead to. If it, if it proves profitable, then they'll go through the permitting process and uh, try to get BLM to approve further permits. So I think there's no end to what's possible, and I think we just have to keep up a valiant effort. Right now I can't see leaving, but, you know, maybe we can't really see what's potentially out there either. Right. I can't imagine leaving. Um, you know, I think that's the power of staying, and I think that's the power of Richard Jeffrey's writing. And we just saw a, a film called Salt of the Earth about Sebastio Salgado, the great photographer, uh, who did extraordinary images um, during the Rwandan genocide, during the Bosnian Wars, and he talked about how his soul was sick by what he saw, of what our species is capable of. And then he proceeded on a new project called Genesis, which was looking at the beauty of the earth that remains. And it, it, it helped to heal him. He returned home to Brazil where he had left and there engaged in a restoration project. And I feel like, you know, here in the American West, particularly in Utah, you know, we are watching great, great destruction because of the oil and gas, because of oil and shell, because of pending um, tar sands projects. But I also think we have great resolve and will within our communities, and I think we can um, take a stand in the places that we love and that we're not to the place of restoration yet. We're still in the middle of, of seeing how it plays out. So... I think it, it is dependent upon um, committing ourselves to this particular place at this particular time. I'm curious, um, you know, you, you're bringing out this, this volume again from 1883, and, and both of you are, are writers. What's the, what's the role of, of a writer in, in uh, what are very political conflicts? Of course, there's, there's activism, but what's the role of art here? I think it's huge. I think the role of the artist is to inspire, is to you know build movements, is to tell stories that might not otherwise be told, is to personally experience and then and tell that story. I think the role of the artist is, has never been stronger or more needed than it is right now. And I just love what I'm seeing when it comes to young people who are really excited about not just science, not just physics and chemistry and business, but the humanities and storytelling and how it all fits together. I, I think we're in a really interesting, exciting time. Well, I wonder, Terry, well, are you seeing this as well? I couldn't agree with Brooke Moore. You know, we've just been, we spent the last three weeks down in Castle Valley with 14 students, part of our environmental humanities uh, graduate program at the University of Utah in a class called Art, Advocacy, and Landscape. And, you know, to be able to walk a particular canyon with someone like Rory Tyler in Moab, who is a self-taught, um, I would call him an expert in rock art, you know, to be able to talk to Walt Dabney, former superintendent of, of Canyonlands National Park, or Heidi Red, or to to hear the stories of, of, of Jonah Yellowman, who is a spiritual leader among the Diné, the Navajo. You know, this looks at land from, from a multifaceted lens and ultimately leads, I think, to a sense of, of the arts and humanities as another means of knowing and discovering the world. And for me as a writer, you know, I think it's about bearing witness. It's about not averting our gaze, especially when things are difficult. So I agree with Brooke. Um, I think that it's important to privilege not just 
the rational mind, but also the artistic mind, not just to honor um, the mind, but the heart. And it takes us back to the story of my heart, which I think is why we are so enthused and inspired um, over Richard Jeffrey's work. We'll take another break uh, when we come back more with Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams. Um, there's a new volume of this book out, published originally in 1883. It's called The Story of My Heart by Richard Jeffries, as rediscovered by Brooke Williams and Terry Tempest-Williams. Terry Tempest-Williams writes the foreword. Brooke Williams writes uh, reactions to the uh, various chapters in this uh, uh, autobiography. We call it a spiritual autobiography of Richard Jeffries, who uh, some call the, uh, the, the father of uh, British environmental writing. Uh, Rachel Carson had uh, his book on her uh, nightstand uh, at all times. Um, and uh, they are appearing at a couple of events in Utah over the next uh, couple of weeks. The first of those is Thursday, tomorrow, November 20th, 7 p.m. at Roland Hall School at the Lincoln Street Campus in Salt Lake City. That's an event for the King's English Bookshop. Then on Monday, December 1st at 7 p.m., they'll be at Back of Beyond Books in Moab. More with Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams following the break. On the next Humankind, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. My amendment, if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people. Author and educational reformer Parker Palmer on the important life questions we don't encourage young people to contemplate. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Anthropology Museum in Old Main, presenting the opening of When I Was a Child, The Anthropology of Childhood, with a lecture by Dr. David Lancey. Friday, November 21st at 6 o'clock p.m. Information at anthromuseum.usu.edu. We're back with Brooke and uh, Terry Tempest-Williams. We are uh, happy to have them with us for the hour. Uh, Just a mention that uh, they will be at a couple of events. You can uh, interact with them, uh, assume reading from the book and uh, and signing probably as well. Uh, The events are tomorrow, Thursday, November 20th, 7 p.m. at Roland Hall School, Lincoln Street Campus in Salt Lake City. That's an event for the King's English Bookshop. Then on Monday, December 1st at 7 p.m., they'll be at Back of Beyond Books in Moab. Uh, They were in Maine. They go there uh, every fall. And in a small bookstore, they uh, ran across uh, the autobiography. The the book is titled The Story of My Heart by British nature writer Richard Jeffries. They just fell in love with the book. They want uh, this to be more widely available. And so now it's out from uh, Torrey House Press. so I wonder, uh, Brooke Williams, uh, do you have a favorite passage? Do you have a, a passage you'd like to read for us at this this point? I have so many. Let yeah, me yeah I, I can imagine. Yeah. Tom, do you see what I've been <laughs> up against? Yeah, yes, yes, I do see. <laughs> really? How long is your program? <laughs> yes, but we've got all the time in the world. Yeah. Okay, uh, let, me just, let me just read some. This is a, just a good sample. United effort through geological time in front is but the beginning of an idea. I am convinced that much more can be done, that the length of time may be almost immeasurably shortened. The general principles that are now in operation are of the simplest and most elementary character, yet they have already made considerable difference. I am not content with these. There must be much more. There must be things which are at present unknown by those whose aid advance may be made. Research proceeds upon the same old lines and runs in ancient grooves. Further, is restricted by the ultra-practical views, which are alone deemed reasonable. But there should be no limit placed on the mind. The purely ideal is as worthy a pursuit as the practical, and the mind is not to be pinned to dogmas of science any more than to dogmas of superstition. Most injurious of all is the continuous circling on the same path, and it is from this that I wish to free my mind." Had it not been for such Victorian prose, I think that could be today. Somebody could write that today, that we're in these grooves. We, we go around and around in circles thinking the same thing, and there's just so much more to it. And I, I really love that. I love the idea that, that the 
geological time is in front of is nothing but the beginning of an idea. Hmm. That that reminds me of the, there's a passage that uh, that I don't know I read or you comment on uh, Brooke that uh, uh, Jeffries was impatient apparently with with people who didn't have an active interior life or at least it seemed to him who were living life just sort of apathetically. Right. Yeah, that just would kind of go through life, uh, you know, by wrote just by remote control, um, you know, doing their work, coming home, going back, doing the same thing all over again. It's, it's the same It's the same thing we have today, where we do that, we're supposed to work until we're 65 and then retire, and then everything's going to be great. And, you know, it just, it just isn't happening. Mm. I was actually having a fantasy that I wish Richard Jeffries was alive, and I would love to have a conversation with him about the zombie apocalypse, you know, <laughs> and what would he be thinking of the living dead? And because I think in many ways he was talking about zombies and what happens when you no longer live a conscious life. You know, one thing, Tom, um, the afterword is written by uh, an environmental literature scholar, Scott Slovic, who is now at the University of Idaho, and he, he says, the story of my heart is so rich that I can hardly bear to read more than a few lines in one sitting. And I think that that's really true. And for your listeners, you know, it's not a book that you read cover to cover. It's a book that you pick up, that you do have by your bedstand, and that you read a paragraph or a sentence here or a sentence there. And it's, it's, it begs to be written to be read, rather, outdoors or to someone you care about. I mean, that's been our great pleasure, I think, in, in wanting to bring it back into print with, with Tory House Press. It's, it's really a gift, you know? And, and it will, I assume you would say, it will play just as well in Red Rock country of, of southern Utah as, as it does in lush green England. I, I think so. I don't, I don't feel that I recall there's that many real references to the exact landscape. It's more his interior landscape, which I think we all have and we all share. Um, so, yeah, I think it plays everywhere. Mm. And I think it's, it's really a volume of how to see, you know, how to see the world and be present in it. And I think for all of us, you know, that's the challenge in a world that, that begs us not to look or to be moving at a pace where we're not as conscious or uh, or present as we wish. Jeffries seemed to be, as you describe him, really just trying to 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 burst limitations. He he he's interested in immortality. He's he's uh, he's he says he's connected to the earth, but he's 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 wanting to you know go to the expanse of uh, of the heavens. I'm just paraphrasing here. Um, and I, I, you know, part of that, especially the mortality, he's he's living with disease. I think he would eventually die of tuberculosis at a young age. But it's a, it's a very it's it's something we all have, I think. Exactly, and you know, you bring up a really good point. And I think that maybe one of the things that's really attracted me is his wondering, his not really knowing, his just thinking that beyond immortality, there's something else. Beyond the soul, there is something else. He was constantly questioning and wondering. He just knew in the depth of his being that there was more than he could see. There was more than meets the eye. There was more to life than that anybody could show him. And I feel like there is, too, and I feel like we need to just keep exploring. There's never, a, there, there is no limit to that. And he must have been a, a man who was very aware of his limits of his body, of his um, energy. And he must have been in pain a lot of the time because his health was so poor. And I think that his love of beauty sustained him. I love that he made how many trips to the Louvre to see one particular uh, statue. Brooke, talk about that. I loved when we went to the Louvre and, and spent the entire day trying to see what he saw. That was, that was a real surprise. We, I'd been doing some research uh, beyond just the book. I, I found a lot of different references to things he had written. 
And we found that to get to um, England, the least expensive way was to take the uh, flight direct from Salt Lake to Paris and then take the channel through, uh, through the water to England. So we spent a couple of days in Paris while we were there, and I took along with me an essay that I had found that Jeffries wrote called Nature in the Louvre. And I said to Terry, won't it be great? We'll use Richard Jeffries' guide of the Louvre as we go through the Louvre. And she thought it would be a good idea, and I thought, well, okay, I'll read it on the plane. It turns out that this 30-some-odd-page essay is about not all the nature in the Louvre, but <laughs> one particular statue. <laughs> and, and it turned out really to be a headless armless, legless statue. It was a torso. The stooping Venus in the... We've we've been to the Louvre before and walked right by it without even looking. It was one of those big marble statues with no heads and arms. And he spent days looking at this statue as if it was the perfect human form. So that was was a real surprise. And we spent the whole day... um, in front of that statue, looking at different angles, watching the different light pour in through a particular window. And we absolutely fell in love with this this piece of art, as he did, with this small child's hand, you know, just lodged on the back of this woman. And we started, by the time we were through, she did have a head, and she did have arms, and our imagination grew the feet, and you began to see this, this fragmented body as whole. And I think that's the kind of alchemy that occurs when, when your attention is seized and you allow yourself that kind of time. Well, we're out of time. Much more we could say, uh, but uh, the book's very interesting. Uh, the book's originally published in 1883, The Story of My Heart, by British nature writer Richard Jeffries. And it's uh, out now, a new edition from Tory House Press. Uh, as rediscovered by Brooke Williams and Terry Tempest Williams. Uh, Terry Tempest Williams wrote the foreword. Uh, Brooke Williams wrote uh, responses to the various chapters. And a couple of events are coming up in Utah where you can interact with Brooke and uh, Terry Tempest Williams uh, on this uh, subject. Uh, the first of those is Thursday, November 20th, tomorrow, 7 p.m. at Roland Hall School. This is the Lincoln Street Campus in Salt Lake City, and that's an event for the King's English Bookshop. And then on Monday, December 1st at 7 p.m., they'll be at Back of Beyond Books in Moab. Uh, Brooke and Terry Tempest-Williams, uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's been our pleasure. Uh, Tom, thank you. We really appreciate all you do. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... A Thanksgiving feast of songs about food and drink. Please, mister, don't touch me, tomato. Please don't you touch me, tomato. Touch me, yummy pumpkin potato. For goodness sake, don't touch me, tomato. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Pack your bags and join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah commentator Gina Wickwar. A young woman chose to end her life two weeks ago. I'm inherently against suicide, but her case was so compelling, it's forced me to rethink some of my old prejudices. Her name was Brittany Maynard, and she was 29. She'd been diagnosed with a stage 4 malignant brain tumor known as glioblastoma. Doctors removed much of the tumor, but within two months it was back, larger and growing. After much research, Brittany rejected chemotherapy and radiation because, as she noted, nothing can cure glial, at least not yet, and the side effects of such treatments were wrought with pain and suffering. They might extend her life a bit, but not without a significant loss of quality. In addition, glioblastoma itself causes debilitating seizures, horrendous headaches, and terrible pain. Acknowledging this, and after long and thoughtful consideration, the young woman, along with her husband and parents, moved to Oregon, the state with death with dignity law that permits doctor-assisted suicide. Her summer was filled with wish fulfillment, visiting Alaska, Yellowstone National Park, the Grand Canyon, and other places near her Portland home. Then on the day she had chosen to die, November 1st, she ended her life with a fatal dose of barbiturates. Sometime in mid-October, I was at the hairdressers and picked up a copy of People magazine. In it, I read Brittany's sad story for the first time, and it shook me. 
As I said, I have never condoned suicide, mostly for personal philosophical reasons and religious ones. But I had to admit that if I ever found myself facing such a horror as Brittany's, I thought I might, just might, entertain the thought of ending things. It was to be expected, of course, that Brittany's assisted suicide would cause great controversy. Supporters of death with dignity, as they call it, think Brittany's death portrayed the rare, courageous self-awareness of someone who knows she's going to die and chooses the time and place. To those who despise the thought of assisted suicide, her death conjures up a slow but inexorable descent into complacency about euthanasia. Today, it is someone terminally ill, but tomorrow, who then might society feel is a candidate? My pay scale is way too low to solve this existential question, a question fraught with theological, societal, and philosophical pitfalls. But I must admit, the story of Brittany's choice has made me more contemplative of the end of my life. If I were in horrific pain, if I could see nothing ahead but grievous suffering, what would I do? Before I knew of Brittany, I would have said I'd soldier on, notwithstanding what God and my human frailty had thrown at me. But now, I have to honestly say that I'm not so sure. This is Gina Wickwar. This week on This American Life, people who live near the border in our country know there are checkpoints sometimes in the middle of regular highways up to 100 miles from the border. You have to stop your car. Federal agents ask if you're a citizen. And people are now making videos of themselves refusing to cooperate. Quit being an idiot. Just I'm not being an idiot. It's, it's a stance are, on principle, sir. No, it's a stance no. on you being an idiot. No, there are sir. thousands of these this week. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah, and now a short news story. A volunteer organization is looking to improve services offered to homeless youth in the state as the holiday season approaches. UPR's Taylor Halverson has the story. Volunteers of America unveiled plans last week to build a new resource center for homeless youth in Utah. Zach Bale, chief development officer for the project, says the new 30-bed overnight shelter will serve the immediate needs of youth, but will also include services to help those being served to overcome their circumstances. We knew that both having a safe shelter, overnight shelter, has been really important, um, but maybe even more important, expanded education and employment support for the youth. We're going to have a lot more space, classroom space, to to provide those types of services, both ourselves and maybe even more importantly, through partnerships that we haven't had space to host. Bale says this facility will be unique compared to others in the state, as it will serve both minors and young adults from ages 15 to 22, bridging the previous transition gap between the two groups. Bale says the transition between the teenage years and adult responsibilities are difficult for every individual. However, he says those factors are compounded for homeless youth. Uh, We see about 60 to 70 percent of the youth having experienced abuse prior to their homelessness, often as a result of kind of, you know, physical abuse done to them by an adult. And so we see a lot of youth that aren't willing to receive services from adult uh, service providers. According to Bale, homeless youth in the state typically migrate to downtown Salt Lake City, where the new facility will be located. While the new center is being funded mostly with private donations, the VOA is still looking to raise about $1 million from the community to complete the project. With Utah Public Radio, this is Taylor Halverson. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.